0: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Today's episode, Best Perfect Day Ever, in which hamburgers are philosophized, pencils are sanctified, and love is quantified. Hey, cuz. Cousin Kenny.
1: That's right.
0: What a pleasant surprise. We haven't
1: gotten together in a long time.
0: Yeah, I I guess I've been sort of busy. What's new? I've got a new business. Uh, Another new business?
1: Catwalkers is done. Catwalkers.com, and that's finished.
0: Maybe not the best idea.
1: Doesn't matter, because I've got a winner here. Bestperfectdayever.com
0: Best perfect day ever.
1: I make the best perfect day ever for you. Uh-huh. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, at cost, your best perfect day ever. You just have to pay—
0: Kenny, when you say the, you, you're, you're being rhetorical here, right? You're no, not talking I'm talking
1: about... about you. Tomorrow, I'm coming to your house, 7 a.m.
0: 7 a.m. Ding dong! That's a little early. Are you
1: answering the door? Ding dong! Can you open the door, please?
0: If I must?
1: I did it for you. Welcome to your best perfect day ever, Jonathan Goldstein. Have a seat while I take out your perfect day breakfast. Half a grapefruit, lovingly serrated with a knife. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of... Perfect breakfast. You finish that, I dress you in your favorite
0: clothes. You address me.
1: Yeah. Then out we go. Mm -hmm. I carry you.
0: You carry me.
1: Downstairs to my van that is full of...
0: I don't know, McDonald's wrappers?
1: Owls and falcons, your favorite.
0: What do you mean my favorite?
1: You love animals.
0: Wait a second, is this connected to that airmail aviary business you had?
1: I have a few left over, and they do not like eye contact.
0: Mm, oh. they just
1: leap right in your face, so I'm going to put a pillowcase over your head.
0: A, a pillowcase? And we get so- to
1: our first event of your great day. tubing on the river. The great thing about tubing on the river is you don't have to get out to go to the bathroom.
0: That is disgusting. You used to love that. No,
1: Remember how much fun we used to have when we were kids? We had that splash fight and you got sick from the water. I almost drowned, Kenny. Memories of the good times. Next, we go for lunch. Where? Strip club buffet.
0: Mm-mm. I don't even like buffets. You have to share a spatula. Next,
1: wing walking on a biplane. I, you Slip you know, your cable, plummeting in free fall. Then, bing, bring on your cell phone, hey, it's me, Kenny. Pull your chute, buddy.
0: While I'm in a free fall.
1: Boom, you're dangling from a tree branch. I come in beside you, boom, dangling from a tree branch. I've covered your shoes in meat.
0: Wait, why meat? Just to attract the bears. Okay, Kenny, I'm not doing this with you. This is, what? by no stretch of the definition, my perfect day.
1: Okay, just whatever. I just thought we could maybe connect on some level and... Probably isn't your perfect day.
0: No. No, it isn't.
1: But, um, you know, when I was a kid, my perfect day was usually hanging out with you. And I don't get that anymore.
0: Kenny, I, look. You don't I don't
1: ever talk to me anymore. Now <sighs> I'm, you know, all I've got is a van full of birds of prey. And just, you know, you couldn't give me a day of your life.
0: Okay, fine. I could give you one day.
1: All right, I'll be over at 8 o'clock. First of all, we get in the van, and I crank the tunes. <laughs> I the time of my life. We're rocking down the road. Then, skeet shooting, naked. Why, why are we naked? Suissant of danger. Then, uh, after the sword fighting, we hit the Scrabble tournament. Stripper edition Scrabble.
0: If Cousin Kenny has taught us anything, it's that the pursuit of the best perfect anything is doomed to failure. The problem is that perfection seems to lie beyond the human pale, existing in the realm of mathematics, say, where one can speak of perfect lines and perfect forms. But trying to achieve such perfection in the physical universe, that kind of thing has been known to drive men mad. With that in mind, I bring you David Reese, professional pencil sharpener. I contacted him at his workshop in upstate New York.
2: My name's David Reese, and I have an artisanal pencil sharpening business. And if you send me money and a pencil, I'm going to sharpen it and return it to you.
0: And, and this, you're serious about this? I
2: literally have a pencil sharpening business. My pencil's are all over the world, and they're also in the personal collections of a lot of writers like Elizabeth Gilbert and Amy Sedaris and Neil Gaiman. And then in addition to those people, just hundreds and hundreds of people in all sorts of professions, you know, school teachers, students, artists.
0: But why don't these people just sharpen their own pencils? What's so great about your sharpening?
2: Well, doing it by hand people find interesting, and and also just this idea that an individual guy is just going to sit there and consider your pencil and try to put the best point on it that he can. It's not just like shoving it into an electric pencil sharpener or something.
0: And so how did this come about? Have, have you, You've always been a fan of pencil sharpening?
2: This is what happened. I had a job working for the United States Census. Mm-hmm. And on the first day of staff training, as a door knocker, they had us all open our little bags of supplies, and inside the bag there were some number two pencils and a little tiny pencil sharpener. And the census trainer said, okay, everybody sharpen your pencils. So we all stood around a trash can and twisted the pencils inside the sharpener and watched the little shavings unfurl within the slit of the sharpener and fall into the trash can. And it had been a long time since I'd sharpened a pencil, and I remember that I thought, wow, you know, this is really satisfying. Forget about working for the census. I wish there was a way to get paid to just sharpen pencils all day. Like, this is the best thing so far.
0: So, and so not only did you, in fact, start a, a pencil sharpening business, but you've also written a book about pencil sharpening.
2: Yeah. It's called How to Sharpen Pencils, a Practical and Theoretical Treatise on the Artisanal Craft of Pencil Sharpening. It has 18 chapters on pencil sharpening techniques.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly thorough. I mean, there there are seven pages with warm-up exercises, and you name all these different kinds of pencil points. Well,
2: there's there's names for the pencil points, but there's also names for the parts of the pencil point, which is the innovation of this book. I created a taxonomy for parts of a pencil point that, to my knowledge, had never been identified before, like the collar bottom and the collar top. Which are? The collar of the pencil point is the exposed cedar that separates the unshaped yellow shaft from the exposed dark graphite. And so by reference to the collar bottom, the collar, and the collar top, you can identify and analyze and celebrate the aesthetics of a pencil point with greater articulation.
0: I mean, you've named all kinds of things that I had never really thought about. Like, there was one particular kind of curly pencil shaving which you refer to as milady's ruffled skirt or something
2: yes abandoned on the floor in the throes of our lovemaking, and a lot of people will request a particular type of sharpening technique based on the type of shavings that they want to have hmm. you cannot produce the kind of apple peel or ruffled skirt shavings by a single burr hand crank sharpener or even by a pocket knife
0: and, and how do you feel about mechanical pencils, which don't actually require any sharpening?
2: There is a brief chapter in my book on mechanical pencils. It's, it's a
0: sentence long. It's just...
2: It's mechanical pencils are bullshit. Right. There's something about mechanical pencils that just really rubs me the wrong way. But the real truth of the matter is I rarely use pencils at all because I'm left-handed. And if you write with a pencil across a page and you're left-handed, by the end of the afternoon it looks like you spent the day, like, karate chopping chimney sweeps.
0: Do, do you have the book in front of you?
2: I do have the book in front of me.
0: Could you read the um, the paragraph on page 114 that starts, this is a stylish pencil point?
2: This is a stylish... Pe- well, let me say this. Yeah. Uh, the pencil point that we're referring to was made by a double burr hand crank sharpener known as the El Casco, which happens to be the most expensive hand crank sharpener in the world. So just to give your listeners some context. This is a stylish pencil point indeed, manifesting a peculiar sophistication that seems so resolutely European, we can scarcely believe it was conjured in an American workshop. When presented with such a point, the natural inclination for many pencil enthusiasts will be to treat it as an art object. They would no more think of applying this point to the page than they would think of eating a Fabergé egg or going pee-pee in Marcel Duchamp's famous art toilet this natural inclination or could it be intimidation is forgivable but the client is also encouraged to discover those pleasures available when the pencil is put to use
0: for, i mean for you it seems as though looking at an unsharpened pencil is is sort of like the way i would imagine michelangelo looking at a, a block of marble or something
2: that's a great analogy
0: you, So you kind of see the perfect object that exists in that pencil.
2: Well, I mean, now we're, we're edging dangerously close to the fundamental anxiety that consumed me while I was writing this book. And I did become kind of obsessive about it. Kind of. Uh, And maybe that's because I was in a weird place in my life and my marriage was ending and I was kind of underemployed and understimulated. And I kind of just latched onto this thing and didn't let it go until I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of everything there is to know about pencils. Hmm. But yeah, I did spend a lot of time wondering about the concept of an idealized form. Is a pencil's idealized form when it's sharpened or unsharpened? So there is always an element of risk or the possibility of failure when you decide to put a point on a pencil. You are potentially ruining it or frustrating yourself with a substandard point it would be very easy to leave all our pencils completely unsharpened and completely platonic except then we wouldn't be able to write with them so given that you have to sharpen this pencil how do you know when it's a perfect point now the way that I dealt with this was every pencil I sharpen for a client gets numbered I have a system of of zero through ten where obviously zero represents an unsharpened pencil and 10 represents the absolute pinnacle of pencil sharpness. And in all my two years of sharpening pencils, I think there was one time when I made a nine and I re- it was a really kind of intense moment because it was just, you know, some random customer who had ordered a pencil and I remember sharpening it. And it was just one of those moments where I nailed it, and I pulled it out of the device, and it was just, whoa. This looks amazing, like like a cartoon of a pencil. Hmm. It looks more like a rendering of an object than an actual object in the world, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, I was pretty excited. I can't remember if I included a note to the client, like, you must never use this. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's that's kind of how I felt about the pencil.
0: Uh, speaking of pencils, you've asked me to bring some material to this conversation.
2: Yeah, I would like to talk you through the process of sharpening a pencil with a straight blade.
0: I have a box cutter. Okay. I have a number 2 pencil. Great. And I I went to the hardware store to get some fine grit sandpaper as you requested. Right. And I don't know if this is fine enough. I I was able to get the 180 um Whew. um grit. Can you... I
2: usually do 320, but I'm sure 180 will work. Okay. So let's do this. Take the box cutter in your dominant hand and take the pencil in your non-dominant hand. Okay. Place the blade maybe one inch down from the end of the pencil at maybe 10 to 15 degree angle. Okay. And you simply push with the thumb of your non-dominant hand, the hand that's holding the pencil. Wait, I'm
0: sorry. I would be using the thumb on my dominant Hand that's holding the blade. I
2: beg your pardon, Jonathan. I want you to use the thumb on your non-dominant hand.
0: Doesn't that seem counterintuitive?
2: Have you tried it yet?
0: Oh, you know what? I'm trying to do it freehand, and I- And you're bleeding. No, but it, it is actually trickier. Now,
2: we don't want to get too excited and actually gouge into the graphite by mistake.
0: Wait, aren't we trying to create a
2: point? We are going to be creating a point, but are we going to be creating it with the box cutter? That's the question.
0: Oh, oh.
2: you're jumping ahead.
0: That's where the sandpaper comes in. Exactly. For as long as I've known him, my friend Josh has been caught up in his own obsession, something he calls the theory of clean and dirty. Let me try to explain... This theory of his purports that foods are either dirty or they are clean. For example, sushi and grilled cheese sandwiches, according to Josh, are clean, whereas General Tau chicken and scrambled eggs are dirty. Why? Josh says that it just is. Does clean and dirty have to do with aesthetics, nutrition, or any other discernible factor in the known universe? According to Josh... No, it does not. In fact, it's something that Josh claims to just know intuitively. Even though it makes no sense at all, there's something inherently provocative about his dualistic system, perhaps in the way it points to a realm of universals, of pure ideas, ideas in the platonic sense, that is, an abstract realm that exists beyond the mutable material world, but is no less real for our inability to grasp it. And so I recently decided to give Josh one last chance to make his theory understood to me. We went out to his favorite diner, a place called T-Lux, where we bought, or rather I bought, because such is the price of learning, one of almost every item on the menu, so that Josh could, through example, show me the difference between clean and dirty.
3: Look at the different fries we have here. Ask me, about, ask me individually about each one of these.
0: Okay, we have waffle fries, uh, home fries. Stop oh, right there.
3: Waffle fries are very, very clean. Home fries, dirty. All right, and, and, and why is that? There is no why. Clean and dirty are the best approximations in the English language for the concepts I'm trying to explain to you. Let me, let me give you an example.
0: Ribs. I'm going to say dirty. They are dirty. Buffalo wings, on the other hand, are dirty. No, they're clean. Makes no sense to me yet. Okay, what about this hamburger before us? Is a hamburger clean or dirty? The way you make a a hamburger clean is as follows You've just pressed the palm of your hand into the hamburger. Your filthy palm, (laughs) may I add, into the hamburger. Uh, What I did was flatten
3: the hamburger. And the flatter the hamburger, the cleaner it is. Okay, so it's about flatness. It's not about flatness. Flatness is just one of the many facets of it. Okay, what else have we got on the table here? Uh, coffee, tea. I mean, coffee could be clean or dirty if you if you don't know what you're talking about. But of course, it's dirty, and tea is
0: clean. C- coffee is dirty even without cream or sugar.
3: What cream or sugar? are Some magic sacraments that make something? No, the coffee. The is- palm of your hand just made something clean. You make it sound so so crazy. I'm spiritual. I'm not crazy. Okay, let's
0: turn to the Smarties and the M&M's. The Smarties is the cleanest food in existence. We have a bag of M&M's, clean as well. Filthy. I wouldn't I wouldn't It's another that. candy-coated chocolate.
3: It's like it's like saying Ashton Kutcher. He's an actor, right? Paul Newman's an actor, same thing. What's the difference? No, it's like saying it's the, the Olsen twins are the same thing, which they are. Not even remotely the same comparison. Some some possible clues might be in crispness and density texture man think you try to eat more clean foods than dirty foods i trend towards the clean when i say that i trend towards the clean it sounds as if dirty things are bad they're not they're just you have to it's like a yin yang sort of thing
0: so does this all have to do with some kind of like personal mythology well, there's nothing to do with my personal preferences it's nothing to do with me at all you
3: understand what i'm saying no, I don't. Sushi is the cleanest food on the face of the earth after grilled cheese and Smarties. Why? Again, I am, I am merely the vessel. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Mint. Clean or dirty? From everything that I've learned from you today, clean. You are completely correct. This is what I think. I think you're fighting your natural impulse to understand. Mutton. Filthy. Ah. Raisins. Dirty. Correct. Because they look like cockroaches, right? Not at all, because currants that are small raisins, those are very clean. You know what, okay, let's let's get you back on track here. How about boiled potatoes? That's an easy one. That's clean, horribly dirty. What's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Boiled potatoes are? Because, see, now you're thinking about what you're supposed to say rather than feeling it. Pancakes, clean, dirty. Pancakes with syrup, very clean. So syrup on something makes it clean, on pancakes. Syrup on waffles makes them dirty. Waffles on their own are clean. If you're having it with a cup of coffee, clean. I thought coffee's dirty. French toast makes it clean. You know what, I I will say this, John. For once, you're actually convincing me that there may be some promise in you, that you're willing to learn, put it that way. If filling
0: my head with garbage is learning, then I guess I am. I like that positivity. (laughs) Perhaps there are some things that simply cannot be understood by reason, that just need to be accepted on faith. Just as there does not exist a machine that can accurately measure a neurotic's conception of cleanliness or dirtiness, there can be no machine that can measure the love in one's heart. Or can there? Earlier this year, Stanford University hosted the world's first-ever love competition. Contestants were asked to subject themselves to an MRI for five minutes and during that time love someone as hard as they could, while scientists measured their brain activity, taking note of the dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin levels in their neurological pathways. The results were surprising. An 11-year-old boy came in second by thinking of his brand-new baby niece. But first place, went to a man named Kent Peltz, who thought about his wife of 50 years, Marilyn, who also participated in the study. Hello. Hi, Kent Peltz. I called up Kent and Marilyn to get a sense of whether something as pure and ideal as love could ever be measured by physical means. Here's Kent describing being put to the test.
4: I was instructed to uh, just hold in my mind how much I loved Marilyn. Hmm. And it wasn't hard for me to remember back to how romantic it was when we first met and first fell in love and uh, first got married. So it was just it was really easy for me to think about that.
0: And Marilyn, what, what were you thinking of?
5: I was thinking about yeah. universal love. I, I used a quote from Ram Das that the whole purpose of marriage was to come to God together. So that's what I was thinking about.
0: And, and so you weren't thinking of specific uh, images from your life together? You were thinking uh, more abstractly?
5: Yes. The experience of being in the MRI was a beautiful one because mm. I just went into a total state of like meditation, and I just felt love for everything.
0: And did you guys enter into this thing competitively, like to to beat each other and win? Like, oh, I'm gonna show you love, pal.
5: <laughs> not not quite that strongly. But we are we are competitive. We are competitive.
0: So Marilyn, did did you feel a little beaten when you lost? But I mean I even to say beaten I guess is to win because you you're loved so much.
5: Yes. Yes, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's right. Point. That's good exactly point. how I felt. Yes. Yeah.
0: So you guys have been married a half a century now. How did you initially meet?
5: <laughs> we met on a blind date on a Friday. And you called me at 7 a.m. the next morning when I, we hadn't, gone, hadn't gotten home until 12 or 1. So I called her Saturday morning and said, can you go out just t- tonight, Saturday night?
4: And she said, no, I have to go back to school this weekend to graduate. And I said, well, how about Sunday night? And she said, no, I won't be back yet. I said, how about Monday night? So we met on Friday. We went out on Monday night. I asked her to go out again on Tuesday night. We went out on Tuesday night, and I asked her to marry me on Tuesday night, and she said yes. Wow. And Ooh, it, was, it just happened really fast. There was no question in our mind. Uh, the universe just moved when we met. There was just something very significant about our, our coming together.
0: Is it, and your love is as strong as it was all those years ago, you guys? Oh, yeah.
5: I think yeah. it's much stronger. Yeah, I do think it's much well, stronger. Well, it's much
0: more mature. Yeah,
5: yeah, it's a much more mature love,
0: yeah. Because, I mean, Kent, during the competition, it sounds as though you focused on the early years of your relationship. Was that a part of your game plan? I mean, do, do, do you think the intensity of early love is easier to measure than a love that deepens over time?
4: Well... um, those early years were just really innocent, and they were the most blissful. Mm-hmm. Um, there comes a point in a relationship where marriage is work. It's not always easy. That's why we say we've been married and divorced thousands of times, but
0: always to the same person. Just because you change, you change so much over we fifty do. years. We do, and
5: I would say that's one of the biggest advantages in our relationship is we allow change. Kent is a hip shooter. I'm Uh, impulsive. Yeah, he's very impulsive. (laughs) He jumped out of a, you know, dove into a swimming pool from a second-story window, and those were the kinds of things that really attracted me to him. But that, and this is what we have discovered with most couples, what you marry the person for becomes the nemesis in a few years.
4: You love it at first. and You then
5: love it. It's what you're attracted to. So his you. impulsivity, one time he took all the insides out of my father's organ because it would move easier. And I was so angry to the point where, okay, am I willing to leave this guy over this one? This is the last straw. And I had to really get a hold of myself and say, now, is this object in front of me more important than the relationship that I've built? And somehow or another, it, it allowed me, it, it allowed me to grow spiritually and learn to make peace with it. So um, the relationship was always more important than either of us as individuals.
4: Hmm. I mean, we all have these really bizarre neurotic behaviors. So reevaluating when you need to be right and when you need to suspend your need to be right. That's what it takes to make a really powerful relationship. Mm. And uh, if you can hold that consciousness, both partners, you'll create something amazing.
0: On Wiretap today, you heard Sean Cullen, Joshua Carpatti, and David Reese, author of the book, How to Sharpen Pencils, to have your own pencil sharpened to perfection, visit artisanalpencilsharpening.com. You also heard Kent and Marilyn Peltz. Learn more about their story and their couple counseling workshops at foreverjustmarried.com. Wiretap is produced by Mira Birdwin tonic Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone.
3: Sushi is the cleanest food on the face of the earth after grilled cheese and Smarties.
0: The clean, dirty, nutritional pyramid with every ring of your phone.